Open a Bible up to Proverbs chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 625. Uh, this summer, at least for the weeks that I'm here and preaching, we're working our way through Proverbs 1 through 9, these, this opening block of teaching. And this morning we look at a first in a series of speeches from a father to his son, trying to train his son in the way of wisdom. And in this speech, the father warns the son that he's going to hear two different voices call for his attention. There's on the one hand, the voice of sinners of the crowd trying to lure the young man to join them. And then on the other hand, there's the voice of wisdom crying aloud in the street. Listen for these two voices in the father's speech as I read Proverbs 1. We're going to start at verse 8 and go through the end of the chapter, verse 33. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods, and we shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one pur purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives." Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the marketplace, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. This is God's word. My outline this morning simply tries to summarize the father's teaching, his two warnings. First, watch out for the crowd's allure. And second, accept wisdom's reproof. Watch out for the crowd's allure and accept wisdom's reproof. 
But as we begin, I want to reflect for just a moment on verses 8 and 9 and this father-son dynamic that structures these early chapters. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, you'll recall that the book is fundamentally a warning to Christians about the various sorts of temptation that they'll face. But the book is structured as a series of letters from a senior demon named Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood, who's a, uh, a tempter in training. So there's this literary conceit in the Screwtape Letters that it's a series of letters back and forth. Similarly, Proverbs 1 through 9 the basic principles and value of wisdom are taught through a series of speeches from a father to his son. It's a literary device. And so we as readers are invited to adopt the role of the son being instructed by our father or by this father. In Hebrews uh, chapter 12, the author quotes from uh, 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 Proverbs 3 and he introduces the quote by saying, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? The author of Hebrews is saying, the book of Proverbs is a series of exhortations that addresses you as sons. Now it raises a little bit of a question that I think we're particularly uh, attuned to in the modern era. We wonder, is this simply ancient patriarchal uh, education where daughters are left out? Well, not at all. Do you see in verse 8, Hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. The mother's teaching is literally the mother's Torah, her authoritative instruction. And so the mother and father are equally sources of wisdom in the home throughout the book of Proverbs. They're parallel together a number of times. Their instruction is equally authoritative for the children. And in order to have wise mothers... You need to have daughters along with sons learning the ways of wisdom. So Proverbs doesn't exclude women, mothers or daughters, from the school of wisdom, but it adopts this father-son conversation as a structure to structure these early chapters, and it's fundamentally driving home the point that wisdom is supposed to be learned in the home. Parents, from Proverbs' perspective, your fundamental goal should not be to have well-behaved children or successful children with good grades or high-paying jobs. The fundamental goal of parents in the Proverbs perspective is to raise wise children who fear the Lord. No matter how old we are, even if we're now parents or grandparents ourselves, nevertheless, we find in Proverbs the exhortation that addresses you as sons. We're never too old to grow in wisdom. We just have to adopt this posture of a child learning in the school of wisdom. Well, let's turn to the Father's two lessons in this opening speech. First, we're warned, watch out for the crowd's allure. Watch out for the crowd's allure. Verse 10 makes this point succinctly. And then verses 11 through 19 spell it out. Do you see there in verse 10? My son, if sinners entice you... If they urge you and cajole you to go along with them, do not consent. Don't give in. This might seem like a bit of an odd instruction to begin with. If you're going to lay out the way of wisdom, is this the first lesson you'd start with? Watch out who you go with, who your friends are? It might seem an odd lesson, but along with foolish speech, anger, and laziness, 
Companions who lead us astray is one of the chief sources of disaster in the book of Proverbs. One of the chief sources of disaster. Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians, probably quoting a Greek uh, uh, playwriter. He writes, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Cervantes includes a similar proverb in Don Quixote. He says, tell me your company and I'll tell you what you are. Why do friends and companions so fundamentally shape us? There's actually a deep theological reason for this. We humans are made in the image of a God who is triune. God is Trinity. From all eternity, God's very being is in relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. And so as images of this fundamentally relational God, we too are fundamentally relational. As one commentator puts it, the persons we are is to a large extent determined by the company we keep. We like to think of ourselves as existing first as individuals with a particular character, and then we later enter into relationships of various sorts as we choose. But that's simply not true to life. From birth onward, we live only in relationship with others. Parents, siblings, caretakers, teachers, friends, family, who feed us, teach us, shape us. Our very character is constituted by our relationships. And so because we are fundamentally relational creatures, it is fundamentally important to be careful about who we keep company with who's influencing us and shaping us. And so the Father states this principle succinctly. Don't consent if sinners entice you. Who are these sinners? Uh, we, we're used to thinking in New Testament terms. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which of course is true. So in one sense, we could say we're all sinners. But in Proverbs, the sinner is not simply someone who has sinned once or twice, who has fallen short of the glory of God, but the sinners are ones who are marked by a pattern of perpetual disobedience to God's commands, a habitual wrongdoer. Fundamentally, their character is to go their own way. And in just a minute, we'll come back to this and see that the Father here defines these sinners in a specific way. In verses 11 through 14, then, the Father offers a sort of parody example of what the enticement of these sinners might sound like. And then in verses 15 to 19, he responds with his own evaluation. What do these sinners offer to entice the son to go along with them? Well, if you see in verses 11 and 12, the crowd invites the son to join them in exercising a sort of counterfeit power by setting ambushes and abusing the innocent. Then in verses 13 and 14, they promise the counterfeit blessing of plunder and the counterfeit community of a common purse. So the crowd offers the allure of excitement, easy money, and companionship. And so the crowd's allure plays on our natural desires, our good and natural desires for adventure, independence, and camaraderie. In ourselves, these are good things. We should have adventure, independence, and camaraderie. As we've seen, we're made for relationship with God and with others. But our hunger for relationship can lead us to do things 
that we would never do otherwise in order to fit in with our friends. Just fit in with the crowd. Our desire for adventure can lead us to do things we shouldn't, in part simply for the thrill of it. In his Confessions, Augustine talks about stealing pears with a group of friends when he was young, not because they were hungry, they just threw the pears out, but simply for the thrill of breaking into someone's orchard and stealing their fruit, seeing if they'd get caught. Likewise, it's good to be financially independent. Children should grow up and be able to support themselves. But we must not exploit others in our desire for wealth. So the allure is good things pushed too far. Counterfeit versions of good things. But we see fundamentally that these uh, sinners that are tempting the sun, they're looking for unjust gain. They offer precious goods and houses filled with plunder. So uh, the Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke offers his own proverb to summarize what these verses teach us. Sinners love wealth and use people. Saints love people and use wealth to help others. Sinners love wealth and use people. Saints love people and use wealth to help others. Does that hit home? How do you think about wealth? Are people a means to gain? Or do you have wealth to help others? Well, the Father lays out the sort of allure, the sort of appeal that these sinful crowds might make. But then he responds. He warns his son, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their path. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. In Proverbs, the way or the path is a fundamental image for life. It's a basic metaphor that runs throughout the whole book. It has three dimensions. So our path is our course in life, our character, sort of the direction we're heading. But our path is also our conduct in life, the individual specific choices and behaviors that we adopt. And then third, our path includes the consequences of our life. A path is headed somewhere. There's a final destination. Verse 16 is a bit ambiguous where this path leads. The Father says their feet run to evil, but the word evil can mean both uh, doing something bad, but it can also refer to a disaster. So are they running to do evil deeds, or are they running into a disaster that will befall them? Likewise, he says, he says they make haste for bloodshed. But he doesn't say whose blood will be shed, the innocents or their own. Then the father drives the point home in verses 17 and 18. He says, ignore the crowd's allure. This is a path that leads to destruction. This crowd is more foolish than birds, for they don't see that they actually wait for their own blood. They're ambushing their own lives. Do you notice... Uh, uh, that the father doesn't just give the son a command. Don't hang out with that group. You're not allowed to see these friends. Instead, he teaches the son to recognize the false allure of the crowd. He even tells him, here's the sorts of things that the crowd will offer you. He shows the sort of glamour of it, but then he also shows the deadliness of it. Why would he do that? Because the father's goal is to train the son to exercise wisdom and discernment himself. Again, parents, if you're always only giving your children rules, don't do this, do that, 
How do they grow in wisdom themselves? We've got to train children to discern and to exercise wisdom to help them to think through why something might be bad rather than just telling them that's bad, don't do it. Verse 19 draws all this to a Such are the ways of wisdom, or sorry, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Unjust gain might be easy money and instant wealth, but ultimately that path leads to destruction and takes away life. So the father warns the son, ignore the crowd's allure. But then he turns to a second voice that the son will hear. And he encourages the son to accept wisdom's reproof. Accept wisdom's reproof. While the sinners offer easy money and lots of plunder, wisdom is actually its own reward. You see, nothing else is offered. It doesn't say, be wise and then you'll get X, Y, or Z. Rather, see in verse 9, the father's instruction and the mother's teaching and wisdom are themselves a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Wisdom is its own treasure. The wise are graceful. They have poise and peculiar elegance that's unmistakable. Initially, wisdom's speech is much less alluring. In fact, one might even take offense at it. Wisdom's a little bit insulting. And yet wisdom ultimately calls the son to a path and calls us to a path that leads to life. See there in verses 20 and 21, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the marketplace, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. Notice uh, two things here. First, there's a contrast with the sinners who sort of try to entice, to allure the son to come along with them. Wisdom speaks loudly, clearly, directly. But second, notice where the wisdom speaks. In the street, in the marketplace. Not often in ivory tower, not just in the church building. This makes sense, uh, since, as Derek Kidner puts it, Wisdom is godliness with work clothes on. Godliness with work clothes on. We all sort of have a general idea of what godliness is supposed to look like on Sundays, right? You know what you're... Uh, we tease Elizabeth because one of her friends came to visit and, 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 and his parents made him wear his Sunday jeans. And we we're kind of joking that that's... Uh, that seems to me to be a peculiar sort of general Linden area thing to have Sunday jeans. But we knew exactly what... He was talking about his Sunday jeans. So, uh, but we know what that's supposed to look like on Sunday. Which clothes you wear, how you act, that sort of thing. But the question is, what does godliness look like the rest of the week? What does godliness look like when you put on your coveralls or apron or tie or scrubs or whatever you wear for work and set about your business? Well, that's what wisdom's all about. Godliness in work clothes. Wisdom's speech, then, what she cries out, is broken into two sections. 22 through 27 is this first part where wisdom warns those who ignore her. And then verses 28 through 31 point to the certainty and finality of judgment. Wisdom begins in verse 22 by reproving the simple for ignoring her. And in verse 22, we're introduced to three characters uh, who are part of the main cast of the book of Proverbs. The simple, the fools, and the scoffers. 
How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? These three aren't simply synonyms, and it's important to see how they differ. In Proverbs, the simple or the naive is one who has not yet been formed or shaped in their character. They, the simple are not yet grounded in wisdom and fear of the Lord. They haven't set out on a pathway yet. The simple then are potentially open to wisdom's appeal, but they also might be persuaded by the crowd's allure. It's not wrong, especially for the young, to be simple. That's the way young are. They're not yet shaped in their character. But to stay naive and unformed throughout your life is blameworthy. And it's a precarious state to be simple since you're open to folly or wisdom. So verse 32 warns, the simple are killed by their turning away. It's important that the simple start as soon as possible walking the path of wisdom. The second character then is the fool who's the opposite of the wise person. Verse 22 says that they hate knowledge, and verse 29 it continues, they hate knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. The fool rejects wisdom's call and reproof and sets off on their own path. We live in a culture that makes uh, following one's own path, making one's own way in life, the highest goal the only way to live a truly authentic life. And indeed, there is no virtue in, re in remaining simple forever. You do need to set out on a path. You do need to make your own way in life. And yet when that in and of itself becomes our ultimate goal, just make your own path, that's the highest value, we're left without any means to distinguish between wise and foolish ways of living. After all, what does it matter as long as it's your way? The third character introduced in verse 22 is the scoffer. We actually saw the scoffer in our call to worship in Psalm 1 at the end of that downward spiral. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The scoffer is the worst of the lot because not only has he, like the fool, rejected wisdom's call, but the scoffer mocks wisdom and discourages others from following her path. Well, in verse 23, wisdom then makes this basic offer. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. If you accept wisdom's reproof, uh, wisdom's correction, wisdom's uh, uh, discipline, and you reorient your life accordingly, the spirit of wisdom will be poured out on you and wise words will be made known to you. Accept wisdom's reproof and you will be given a wise spirit. It's an astounding offer. But then the rest of wisdom's speech is taken up with a warning. Many ignore wisdom's call and counsel and will have none of wisdom's correction. And yet eventually calamity and terror will strike like hurricanes and whirlwinds. And in that day, wisdom will laugh. It seems a bit vindictive. But verses uh, 28 through 31 unpack the thought. Wisdom takes time to develop. 
the habits and practices of wisdom are hard won. And there finally comes a point when it's too late. If you haven't cultivated wisdom, it's too late in the midst of a crisis to call out and expect to suddenly find wisdom. If our life is characterized by not choosing to fear the Lord and by despising wisdom's reproof, we can't expect to suddenly have wisdom when we need it. Again, we live in a culture that pushes against this sort of way of thinking. What do we want? Fast food, fast fashion, easy money, and we get annoyed at the slightest delay. We have instant coffee, instant noodles, instant oatmeal, but there's no such thing as instant wisdom. It takes time to develop. It's like walking a path. And so wisdom warns there will come a point when it's too late to get the wisdom we need to face the situation we face. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. The chapter ends then with a summary of the Father's teaching. The simple are killed by turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease, without dread of disaster. Ultimately, the Father is teaching there's two voices that call us to two paths. We can listen to wisdom and dwell securely, or our way will end in destruction. Uh, in contrast to the sort of shallow pluralism that we see around us, wisdom boils it down to ultimately only two ways. And in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this same point in a different key. Everyone then, he says, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and the fall of it was great. As in Proverbs 1, Jesus makes this contrast between the easy, quick building of a house on sand. After all, who wants to dig down to the bedrock? And yet he says this sort of construction, this sort of way of life will not last in the day of crisis. Again, Jesus contrasts the wise and the foolish, and yet now they are contrasted specifically with how they respond to Jesus' own word. It's not simply that Jesus makes more clear the wise way of life, but that Jesus himself is the wisdom of God. Uh, the sinner loves wealth and uses people to get it, but the saint uses wealth, loves people and uses wealth to help them. Well, surely Jesus then is the pinnacle of that way of life. Jesus who gave up his own throne and throne room for the good of others, who gave up everything to become poor, to become a servant, to rescue us. And so the contrast is between how we respond to Jesus who gave himself to give us life. Our path is ultimately determined on how we respond to him. 
So Paul calls us in Colossians, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Let him be your path, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. In, in light of the New Testament, we can say there's two ways, like we heard in Psalm 1, like the Father says here, there's two voices. There's two paths, like Robert Frost says, forking in the wood. And yet, at the fork, at the crossroads, stands the cross of Jesus. And it determines how you respond to that cross, determines which path you're on. Friends, wisdom warns us in this chapter, a crisis will come. It doesn't say if you follow wisdom, there'll never be a crisis. No, it says the storm, the whirlwind, the flood, it will come. And so you need to be prepared. If we stayed simple and choose not to fear the Lord, the storm will come and crush us. But if we've walked in wisdom, if we've walked in the way of Christ Jesus, if we're rooted and built up in him, if, to use Jesus' image, we've built our lives founded on obedience to his word, then when the storm comes, and it will come, nevertheless, we will dwell secure and at ease without dread of disaster. Jesus is the faithful companion who, rather than using people to get wealth, uses his wealth and even his own life to love us and help us. Bad company corrupts good character, but if Christ is our companion and we walk in him, on his path, then we will be shaped over time to have wise, Christ-like character that can withstand any crises. We will have the firm foundation that can withstand any storm. Let us pray. Lord, you see clearly and profoundly the temptations that we face. There's all sorts of allures to go after things that we ought not to because they promise adventure, they promise wealth, they promise camaraderie and companionship. And yet, Lord, you see that the end of those ways is destruction. Preserve us, Lord, from the day of destruction. Teach us to follow your path of wisdom the path that begins with fear of the Lord, the path that is marked by the cross of Christ and that ends with a gentle and Christ-like character that can stand firm through any storm. Lord, may our ears not be deaf to wisdom's cry, but may we hear her clearly and respond. By your Spirit, be at work in us even now, giving us a desire to be more like Christ who gave up all of his wealth and his own life for our good. And may we, as we go about this week, practice wisdom, godliness, and work clothes. May we use our wealth and our resources to love others and to serve them. Amen. We're going to respond now to this call 